In Rebuilders today, we are exploring a new polarization as we move out of grey zone into a new era. Yeah, from left to right to something new. Um, and many people, I think, listening to this will see a number of things that they recognize but haven't named. And so I'm excited. I think this is painting the picture of, I think, some of the new trends, the shape of the new era that's emerging. Plus also, we dig deep into an issue, not deep, but we do mention an issue that almost tore the Rebuilders team apart. But to hear that, you're going to have to listen. (laughs) Uh, Let's get into it. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name's Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. I was about to say Daniel and Mark and then I was like, that felt wrong. Yes. Hello. Present. Uh, we're back. We are. We're back. Yeah. How are you both going? Good. How long has it been? Uh, about uh, like over a month. It was a month and a half. I think it was like yeah. first week of August we did an episode. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for your patience with us, listeners. Mm. Um, but it is good to be back. You know what else is good? Uh, the amount of sunshine we're experiencing oh. at the moment. Oh. It's pretty glorious. Yeah. It is interesting though. Like you're seeing our American friends. Instagramming the change oh, in yeah. weather. Yeah. All you like, Northern Hemisphere people, yeah. we've been watching your Instagram yeah, like yeah, yeah. during this summer and you know, you're putting up pictures of your holiday in the sun and you are triggering us. But now the tables <laughs> no, are turned. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's all global warming, but <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> well, except yeah. were you saying before it's like thirty-four. Yeah, thirty-four in centigrade Sydney. Celsius in, in, in Sydney, which is ninety three Fahrenheit. Which is ridiculous for this time of year, you know. Yeah, crazy. Um, crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad we've caught up on the weather. I mean, I I <laughs> brought it up. So we're Australian. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Can I just can I just bring something up? Because I mean people may be wondering why we haven't been around. And you know, there's lots of things. We've been busy. There's been a conference we've run as a church. And mm. um, but I, I think there are really covers. Um for a big issue that really emerged um, over the last little while, which we've worked through and we're back together. But we were eating at a Korean restaurant um, uh, about a month ago and I was sitting across from both of you and in the midst of conversation it was revealed that Daniel has not washed his hair <laughs> since 2018. <laughs> I was and wondering where you're going yeah, with this. I know. I'm like, and oh, it threw us. It, it rocked us. It rocked us. Um, <laughs> there has been much mediation, counselling, uh, a lot of shampoo bought, and uh, we're back. Um, so thank you. Thanks for everyone who was sending in messages of encouragement during this time of great difficulty. All right, I, I need to just clarify. I do wash my hair, but it's probably about twice a year. With shampoo, with shampoo that is. I wash yeah. it every other day with like just water. Like as in yeah. water passes over it. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And it's clean. Yeah. Is it? The water it's is sorry, clean. Sorry, we're not there yet. <laughs> Bring back the mediators. We're not there yet. <laughs> I will say after that, after that intervention or whatever that Korean restaurant yeah. experience was, I did go home and wash my hair. Did so you? Good. Good. Oh, wow. Good. Peer pressure. Wow. Well, <laughs> have you booked in, you know, in 2024 in, you know, August for your next hair, hair wash? I still have the same shampoo from like when I first moved into the our house like <laughs> six years ago. That's, that's not something to be proud of. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And what? It's like one of those travel, <laughs> travel shampoo yeah, yeah, containers. Wow. Oh, I had forgotten about that. Um, yeah. I yeah. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> He's thinking about uh, it most evenings. Yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, what a time. What a time. Can but you- we're back. Daniel's hair is slightly cleaner. Mm. And um, we've got a bit to talk about, obviously, um, 
after just over a month off, there's yeah. there's a whole bunch of stuff that's been going on in your mind um, <laughs> that you're ready to <laughs> that you're ready to talk about. Yeah. Um, so we have been talking about um, moving out of grey zone and into yeah. a, into a new era. Yeah. Um, and part of what we'll focus on today is this this new level of polarization or a new type mm. of polarization that mm. we're experiencing. Yes. Yes. So it's a, it's a journey from the old polarization to a new polarization. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not proclaiming uh, the um, uh, all, you know, polarization is over. Um, it's just taking a different form. And maybe as we dig deeper into this um, uh, episode, we'll realize that actually it's that new form has actually been an old form and we've misread it. Okay, interesting. Well, as as a where would you like to start? Okay, so the big argument that I'd like to make is that actually we're moving from a left-right polarization is how we tend to think about polarization mm-hmm. and very much polarization is being something that has very much defined American politics but because of Americans' influence in the world has spread out across the global digital sphere influencing not just the digital space but also the everyday space, political space, social space, cultural space. Um, but it's really interesting. Uh, I In the last sort of, um, you know, few weeks as I, you know, in between the many, many uh, mediation sessions, <laughs> I, I was reading um, uh, yeah, political scientist Michael Lind's uh, book, The New Class War, and he makes a really interesting argument, which I'm going to sort of bounce off a few different other theories. But he says basically that the primary division, we misread it, the primary division and polarization in, in culture is not between left and right, but actually between what he sort of calls an overclass and an underclass. That is actually the primary division in culture. And he uh, basically he argues that many people misread that. Okay. Well, perhaps it would be helpful to understand the nuances of what, what overclass and yeah. underclass is. So basically what he says is that, um, you know, you see there is a particular overclass in uh, the West and, uh, and I would even say parts of the developed world. Um, and that overclass is very much defined by those who have – University education, um, they tend to think very differently about particular issues, um, that if you even look at how our cities are increasingly sort of, you know, structured, you know, uh, often people who have high influence will live in particular kinds of neighbourhoods, often very close to the urban core. I know it's a bit different in America, but I think if you, you know, look, look at Europe or, you know, Australia or New Zealand, you have, you know, sort of an inner urban elite class who tends to have a lot of social capital. Um, there are often people who tend to have, you know, more money um, and uh, more social influence. And then, you know, you have often on the outskirts in the exurbs or in the outer suburbs, you have people who often, you know, are more likely to be involved in industries uh, which are more around manufacturing, production. They're less likely to have a university education. Um, so in some ways, it's a little bit like the old working class, white collar, blue collar thing. Sure. Um, but actually, I think there's a little bit of difference, um, which, you know, may sort of come out as we uh, sort of talk. And it's been really interesting because class, which is really what this discussion is about, is one of the great isms that no one talks about about Mm. when it comes to prejudice Mm. and I think there's a reason for that that'll become apparent as we sort of move through this but he argues that actually that sort of class dynamic between that sort of overclass and underclass is really something that drives now many people listening will think well I'm definitely not part of the overclass Um, and probably with Lynn's sort of uh, argument uh, probably many rebuilders listeners would be more likely to be in the overclass than the underclass Um, and uh, yeah so 
to dig into this, um, we sort of have to go back a little bit in history and, um, you know, we have to go back to, um, you know, a period which, you know, very much changed, um, you know, this understanding of, of, I guess, of class. So, if you go back before, you know, in, in the sort of industrial revolution right up into the 20th century, you very much had so much of what's seen as the social engine was the battle between working class people and sort of, you know, the upper class people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was because the economy moved very much to an industrial base and there was a huge amount of manufacturing in the West. Yeah. And so, you know, labour, like if you think of the labour parties, parties like the Labour Party in Britain, the Labour Party in Australia, the Labour Party in New Zealand, um, uh, you know, the Democrat Party in, in the United States were very much parties of the of working labour. Mm. Unions, organisation came together. Um, and that was, you know, a lot of people talked about class. But then we sort of, you know, it got to that period which we talk about a lot on this podcast of, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union and that sort of Cold War dynamic which had driven uh, as well as sort of the end of manufacturing in the West – um, as globalization took off, a lot of manufacturing was offshored to countries like China. And so, in a sense, you had this lot of decimation of the industrial working class in the West. And a lot of that sort of, you know, went overseas. And you had this moment where, uh, you know, John Mearsheimer, who's the sort of realist international relations thinker, um, you know, would say that we entered into a period of what he calls liberal hegemony. Mm-hmm. So when you are dealing in a Cold War situation, your foreign policy has to be what he would call realist. Like you've got to deal with the world as it really is. But all of a sudden you have this moment where the West, uh, liberal democratic West, seems to have triumphed over the communist world. And all of a sudden, um, you have a unipolar moment. What that means is you have one country ruling the world, and that's America. So because America is not got a sort of power competition with other countries, it becomes hugely idealistic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have this idea that then it has this crusade that it goes on, almost like a missionary endeavor to export uh, democracy and ideas of human rights and liberalism uh, to other countries. And, you know, famously we see this in the Middle East and, um, you know, George Bush, you know, sort of trumpeting sort of like, you know, wars in Iraq, wars in Afghanistan as, you know, needing to be parts of the war on terror, but also needing to be parts of of spreading this sort of gospel of liberal democracy across the world. Um, and this sort of expands into multiple things. This is not just on the right. Like you would argue that the Republicans on the right who were sort of pursuing that, um, you know, would be more on the right. But you also see it on the left. You see an expansion around human rights of, you know, issues around equity and equality and inclusion, you know, become mm-hmm. very normative uh, in society. And we sort of almost moved from liberalism to almost this hyper-liberal moment. So this has very much defined the last 30 years. And what you have is you have an overclass which came of age in that period. Mm. So they're defined by this unipolar moment. They're defined by liberal hegemony. And what liberal hegemony means is that hegemony is the dominant force in the world, the, the sort of dominant ideology is one which is around liberalism, the rights of the individual, the rights of human rights and, you know, you know of, of democracy and, and equality and fairness and so on. But what's happening is that what's happened, I think, really since 2016, part of the change that happened in the world is that the world is moving away from that unipolar moment Mm. and things are shifting. And so very much when you had the unipolar liberal liberal hegemony moment, what you had was liberalism going forward and that was happening internally Mm. in places like America um, and Australia or, you know, many countries around the world. 
Um, and really the, the, the great argument was about polarization within cultures because it was how far are we going to take liberalism and conservatism was putting the brakes on. But we are shifting and a number of things have changed and uh, it'd be yeah good to talk about this. But just before we get into like uh, how this has changed, I just want to just define um, uh, how Lind would say that we're in this sort of overclass versus underclass moment. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what he says is interesting, and this is really fascinating because people would be hearing this and going, yeah, but there's still lots of left and right battles. There seems to be lots of polarization happening. Um, so Lind would actually argue that the overclass has its own left, center, right spectrum. Yeah, okay. And the underclass has its own left, center, right spectrum yeah, as that, well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so he says this, this one way to understand these results is to recognize that in the United States and similar Western democracies, there are two political spectrums, one for college-educated managerial professional overclass minority and one for the non-college-educated working-class majority of all races. Mm-hmm. So that's another point that he makes there, that that the overclass is a minority, which yes. is really, really interesting. Mm. Um, and he also makes this point, which is fascinating. He says the overclass tends to be or left, I'll actually just write, read the quote. Put it another way, the center of gravity of the overclass is center-right pro-market on economic issues and center-left anti-traditional on social issues. In comparison, the center of gravity of the much larger working class is center-left on economic issues and center-right on social issues. Mm. So you still have these left-right things going on, but actually what you have is um, – them happening in these spectrums. And almost you've got these two classes who aren't talking to each other. Yeah. Um, so he would argue, say, in the American overclass, you'd have someone like George W. Bush, um, you know, who would be on the right and he still has influence. Obama would be on the left. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating is you've seen how they've become like buddies because he would, Lind would argue they have more in common with each other than they do with the underclass, yes. if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. So something you mentioned earlier was that pro- um, likely um, the majority of our listeners would be considered in the overclass. How how do we kind of grapple with that and see ourselves wi- within that as we're kind of navigating this conversation? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that, um, I mean, I could be wrong. So that's yeah, just, yeah, just, sure. me, yeah, just yeah, me yeah. guessing. Um, well, I think one of the fascinating things is that what marks the particular overclass at the moment, because it's, it's, it's come of age in that 30 years of, you know, equality and inclusion and diversity and, and all these values is, that means that it doesn't like to think of itself being in the overclass. Whereas yeah. if you went to the 19th century, the Gilded Age, um, that people understood that they were very different from yes. working class people and they distanced from them and they would sort of look down on them, you know. And, you know, you could imagine yourself riding through a carriage in 19th century London. It's very clear that you're above the majority of people on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of, the, one of the ways that I think that this world has been shaped is, and this is why I think people struggle to see this. Um, so, you know, uh, but we'll get to a point in a second is I think it's beginning to change. So there okay. may be some people here in the overclass who are being pushed into the underclass. We'll get, we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> um, but I think one of the things that marks the particular elites at the moment is that they don't see themselves as being elites because that seems to go against the very liberal hegemon- hegemonic values that they had yes. of human rights that that, that sort of understand uh, undermine so this so this this sort of analysis is quite provocative for people sure um 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting too, because like, so what's happening, this means that in this new polarization, issues will come across and they may be issues which are dis- you know, distinctive mm-hmm. um, in of themselves and really important in of themselves, but they're fed into this like battleground between this new polarization and they're polarized in that way. So an example we have in our country at the moment is we have a referendum coming mm-hmm. up, um, which is basically where everyone in Australia has to vote on a particular change to our constitution, which would um, recognize Indigenous Australians and give them a particular voice to parliament and mm-hmm. advisory voice on particular issues. And so this was this has been floated for some time, but it's been uh, notable to see how as the election campaign campaigning and uh, what is it on the the, the Vote is on the 15th or 16th? Yeah. 14th. 14th. Um, 25 days away, I believe. 25 days away. Um, actually on the day of our national- The second um, day, yeah, yeah, Second yeah. day of our <laughs> national conference. Um, for 24-7 prayer. For 24-7 Australia. prayer Just Australia. Um, so, and in Australia, voting is compulsory. Yes. Um, so, so everyone has to vote. Um, so what's happened is, and look, you know, f- you've had this issue all of a sudden, people have sort of been talking about it, but as the campaign's begun, you can see how it's been polarised. Mm. And even when you look at a lot of the um, data around it, very much that the polarisation of this sort of overclass, underclass. So the majority of Indigenous Australians support the voice is what, what the data is telling us. But then you get outside of Indigenous Australians, it's very much become a overclass, underclass issue, mm. um, and particularly against the background mm. of um, uh, cost of living. Mm. Um, so, you know, you see this as well in New Zealand. You know, we talked about, um, uh, you know, several episodes ago, the sort of fall of Jacinda Ardern's, uh, you know, prime ministership um, and Chippy Hipkins, um, is, is, is his name, is it? Uh, Chippy, uh, his nickname, <laughs> um, you know, came in and was almost apologetic. So the Labor leader was almost apologetic to New Zealand, um, basically saying, um, you know, like we went too fast. Really interesting. I'm just going to read some quotes from um, Canada. Um, and I, I forgot which paper this was in, um, but uh, I can tell you in a second. Uh, no, I won't. I'll co- I think it was in a Toronto paper. I can't remember which one. But basically it talked about how, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau, who very much would embody the sort of, you know, liberal hegemonic sort of overclass, you know, values, mm-hmm. um, you know, he swept a, you know, sort of won in 2015, election victory, had a lot of millennials vote for him. Yep. Um, you know, they, they said this, younger people who were key to Trudeau's 2015 election victory have now broken for the Conservatives at rates that have not been seen since the 1980s. A new Abacus data survey found that millennials were nearly twice as likely to vote Conservative as Liberal. Really interesting because that's mm. not how it's it's seen. Uh, and the Tories, which is the Conservative Party, even led among younger Generation Z or Generation Z. Canadians aged 18 to 27 favoured the Conservatives at a rate of 32% against the 24% for the Liberals. So something has profoundly shifted mm. since 2015. Yeah. Really, really fascinating. And, and what you're seeing is this dynamic playing out. So even these people who perhaps you would have thought that, you know, the classic story that I guess the liberal West tells about itself is that as people get older, they're inevitably going to get progressive. And as time passes, we'll all end up progressive. But something very different is happening here. Let me read on from uh, this paper from Toronto. Was it the National mm-hmm. Post? National is Post, yeah. There you go. Well, well fact-checked. Um, the reason for the shift is pretty simple. Canadians are getting pummeled by unaffordable housing and rising cost of living. 
and they trust the Conservatives to solve this more than the Liberal incumbents. And the Abacus data poll found that the rising cost of living was by far the number one issue for Canadians under 40. Now, I found this bit really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Environment and climate change, top millennial issues when the Liberals took office in 2015, are now rapidly receding into the background. Just 23% of millennials named climate change as one of the top three political issues, the lowest results among any age demographic. So certain issues which were seen what, hell, 80 years ago mm. as the top issues are no longer seen as the top issues because all of a sudden we're moving from an age of high idealism mm. in the unipolar moment and I think you could argue that the unipolar moment takes a fatal blow in 2016 mm. uh, or, you know, the, the sort of, yeah, the idealistic liberal hegemonic moment and actually what's happening now is that uh, – you know, we're moving from an idealistic world into a much more realistic world. In an idealistic world, you act as how you want things to be. That's what politically, corporate campaigns, all of that. We're now moving into a world where you act as the world is, yes. which is realism. Now, not everyone has caught up with this. We're in a significant change moment. So, so what this what this does is that the overclass is struggling with three things. So, sadly, I mean, like, I mean, full disclosure, I'm, I think the voice is, uh, I'm pro voice um, in you know recognition of of Indigenous voice to Parliament. That's my particular personal opinion. Um, um, and but what you can see is that this issue now is being placed in this uh, spectra, you know, in this battle, which is really about a larger battle that's happening across the world as things are being seen as they become issues or banners for, in a sense, underclass protest. Yeah. So there's tremendous frustration in the underclass that issues around. So for the voice, you're hearing protests like, well, why are we talking about this and changing the constitution when I can't even pay my bills? Sure. Yeah. So, so this is the tension that these issues in multiple countries are uh, experiencing at, at the same time. Um, so this is where populism comes from. Mm -hmm. So populism makes more sense. So one of the stories I most told about populism um, in this sort of moment is um, things were going fine and we had lovely centrists in, in, and the world was sort of like good and then all of a sudden it was Russia or it was the internet or something happened and um, all of a sudden things just went crazy in 2016. How on earth did that happen? Yeah. Uh, what I like about I think this analysis is that actually – uh, it has a much longer story, and this is where we connect with the story of neoliberalism, sure. as yeah. we've been telling, that you know, a, a real project begins in the 1980s and, and takes real ascendancies at the beginning of the 1990s of globalisation, which was moving large amounts of working class um, jobs offshore and um, getting China to build lots of you know, things for us at a mm -hmm. cheap price. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, that's done two things. So it's created uh, increased disenfranchisement amongst working class people. Yeah. Secondly, we borrowed lots of money to do this because we were in a what the former head of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, called the nice era, no interest rates, continual expansion. That's now over with the return of interest rates um, rising. We have a more realistic economy versus mm. an idealistic economy. 
Um, and China, which you know was tried to be brought into the sort of economic order of the West, uh, or you know the economic order driven by the West, has all of a sudden what that's done is it enabled it to become a peer competitor to the United States. So the United States is no longer in a unipolar moment; it's now in a multipolar moment. And you have powers like China as its main peer competitor, but then Russia, Iran, Turkey, you know all of these different countries, India, um, you know out there is that this world is is disappearing and things are changing. So this has created resentment. And so what you have is you have populist figures who understand that the underclass is a very potent voting block mm. because the underclass don't necessarily have cultural power per se, but they have voting power in democracies. Yes. Um, and so they see increasingly, and Michael Moore did a video, the filmmaker, just before the 2016 election. He's one of the few people who thought that people Trump will get in because he said people live in this world where, in a sense, the overclass are determining the um, you know, sort of cultural landscape. And as soon as you get in that voting booth where no one can see what you're voting, that's your moment to protest. Yeah. Um, and so figures, and it's interesting, a lot of the populist figures are actually from the overclass. Mm. Donald Trump is a billionaire property owner. Someone like Nigel Farage, you know, in, in Britain is behind the Brexit campaign. These are people who are from the overclass. There are some populist figures who come from, from the underclass. But often what they try and do is they see that the underclass is a political block that they're able to uh, get votes from um, and, 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 and use that. Um, so there is this element that there is this tremendous internal pressure on the overclass. I can, I can talk about that in a second. So the overclass is finding itself at a real moment of crisis, but I'll just pause if you've got any reflections or questions. I guess uh – not entirely sure how to articulate this question, but thinking you were just sort of the way that you were talking about the underclass just then sounded like, and forgive me if I'm wrong, sounded like it was, it, you, okay, first you talked about it being sort of left, there's there's a left and right um, yes. to each, to both the underclass and the overclass. Yes. But the way you were just talking about the underclass then suggested that they, that collectively the underclass you know, in the case of voting, vote similarly, but that doesn't necessarily uh, take into account that that left and right. Yes, great question. Sway. So, yeah. what's going on there? So, so one thing I found fascinating, which was not well explained, is the two classic election examples of the protests that happened in 2016 is Brexit and mm -hmm. the US election, which elected Donald Trump. Very few people explained why many people who voted for Obama then voted for Trump mm. and why many who were voting for Bernie Sanders and when Bernie Sanders, who's you know the, probably the furthest left candidate, when he didn't get in, a number of those people switched to Trump. Very few people explained that. Very few people explained why Brexit, which was seen as a right-wing issue, was voted for by a numerous people who were traditional Labor voters. Mm. So what's going on there? Mm. So I think what, what your question is getting at is, and Lynn makes the point that um, the underclass is not trying to build anything. It's trying to protest. It's a counterculture. The yeah, overclass okay. is an institutional culture. Yeah. It has taken control of various institutions and it's changing them to its moral vision. Mm. But at the same time, there's less of a desire to, to actually 
build something as there is to tear something down because there's a tremendous frustration and resentment. It's more resentment driven and that resentment is uniting people. Yes, okay. So the Canadian data I think is what's going on there. So so one of the great pressures that's coming on the overclass is that during the period of low interest rates and quantitative easing, printing of money, you could just continue to do big projects. You could you mm-hmm. could fund things, right? And the economy was kept at this level where you could buy cheap stuff. You know, there's the famous article I think we've referenced on here before, the Derek Thompson article in the Atlantic called the Millennial Life Subsidy that, yeah, you could live in San Francisco and, you know, interest rates were low and Uber was, you know, cheap and, you know, your Peloton you could hire and blah, blah, blah. All of that's coming to an end because interest rates have risen Mm -hmm. and that's affecting everything from home ownership, rentals to uh, even stuff like Uber is, is going up. Mm. Um, and so all of a sudden, economic pressures are returning uh, people to normal. So Peter Turchin um, wrote another book, which has got another interesting angle on this. He wrote a book, uh, he's just got a new book out, but this is part of his theories. He's written a new book, End Times, Elites, Counter Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration. And he looks at historically this trend. He says this trend is not just something which is happening now, something very similar. And he's got some differences with, with Lind, but I think they're hitting at the same thing that basically what you have is you have elites come in and there's inevitably a point where the elites shift things in their favor to where income inequality grows. And as soon as mm-hmm. income inequality grows, that's when you're in trouble. So, for example, in Australia, you know, five, six, eight years ago, a lot of Australia is a wealthy country and, and we have a lot of benefits and we have a capitalist economy alongside a very strong safety net. So, you get the best of both worlds. And, you know, eight, nine years ago, it wasn't shocking for Australians, even middle and lower class, to go on a holiday overseas mm-hmm. regularly. Yeah. Now, I was on the train the other day and I, was, I overheard two young uh, women, probably in their early 20s, late teens, early 20s, um, high school finishers, and they were saying, I can't go overseas. It's too expensive now. Like, mm-hmm. I can't afford My friends are going to want to go. We can't afford to do it anymore. Uh, I was sitting across another couple of girls a little while later in a cafe. Um, they looked the same as these girls, yet these were planning their European holiday, these two girls mm-hmm. still. All of a sudden, that opens up a gap between those two groups of people mm-hmm. that wasn't there previous. Mm-hmm. So fault lines and fractures that were not there when income inequality wasn't as expansive and some of the things that are papered over income inequality wasn't there, that those fractures become keener. Um, we've been seeing here in Melbourne that people just, you know, presumed in the past that, you know, if you could move into one of our cooler neighborhoods and you sort of do that and maybe get a dingier place, we're seeing people can't afford that now and yeah. ending up in neighborhoods that aren't cool because they just, that's all they can afford. And so all of a sudden this starts to create divide. So one of the great things that the overclass has to deal with is when there is income equality, there's greater resentment and it changes the dynamic and it creates resentment. So would it be fair to say that in very simplistic terms, the overclass kind of um, hold an idealistic view of the world or espouse um, ideals that we can all live up to because they have the, uh, the benefit of, you know, financial power perhaps mm-hmm. and can set a cultural agenda Whereas um, the underclass don't have that same power, so they live more in the the realistic yes. space. Yes. They are yes. affected and are going to um, be impacted yes. by 
the nature of the reality that's going on, not necessarily the ideals and yes. um, cultural ideology yes. at the time. Yeah. Yes, okay. yes. And so what I've just talked about there is the internal pressures that are coming on this system, particularly against the upper class, the mm -hmm. overclass. Mm. But also what is happening is, and look, this goes back to continual themes in this theory of mm. complexity and systems that – these countries, whether you're in Canada, New Zealand, whatever, they're not existing in isolation, that we live in a complex world. And pardon me, it's a connected world. And so you have these external pressures. So just overnight, story broke uh, in Canada that um, a Sikh dissident who is a proponent of the Sikh separate state, uh, Khalistan, so there's a, a Sikh minority, they li you know, live in the Punjab, um, region of, of India, borders Pakistan, and they want their own state, a Sikh okay. state. Yep. And there's protest movements. There's been protest movements here in Melbourne and um, Canada has one of the largest um, Sikh populations um, outside of India. And a dissident was killed and the Canadian government had come out and they've made hints that possibly the, the uh, Indian in uh, intelligence services executed someone. I think it was, was it in Ontario? I can't remember where it was. Um, now, what's going to happen to Two, not so much the US. The US is a big beast. But for countries like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, European countries, Scandinavian countries, even countries like Germany, Great Britain, all of a sudden you now have in the world the peer competitors to America who are really big. Mm. So China, India is really big. If this isn't true, and it's alleged we don't know, if India now feels because of its own, and we've talked about civilizational states before, it's got mm. a, you know, a Hindu nationalist civilizational state template that is playing in the world. If Hindi, Hind, India, Hind, India <laughs> feels that uh, it can now ex like kill someone on Canadian soil, it does not respect Canadian sovereignty that much. Mm. You know? And there's even talk that we've had people you know, killed in Australia by foreign security services. Um, what happens to the liberal hegemonic states, particularly the Western ones that are not America, when all of a sudden they're not the big boys mm. and you've got countries like China, India, you know, Russia, you know, even Poland is, is getting more and more powerful. Mm -hmm. um, that creates this imbalance where so much of the liberal hegemonic thing is based on hegemonic, hegemony, that you're yeah. in control. When you're not in control and you're not the biggest in the world and you've got far bigger countries that previously you thought of as developing but are now bigger than you yeah. and have more influence, that's a really interesting dynamic that you're going to you know, struggle with um, going forward in the future. Uh, the second thing too is – so much of the 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 overclass's legitimacy is based on how you manage. We learn through neoliberalism. Yeah. Neoliberalism is the science of management. So much of it, managing the economy, managing the free markets, uh, and we've seen multiple crises come across our sort of dashboard from you know COVID, the environment, economic crises. And so for that sort of overclass who still have the value of liberal hegemony, how do you do that when you're facing a world of complexity and cascading crises is mm. rocking their legitimacy? Mm. So COVID's rocked the legitimacy. The economic global financial crisis rocked the legitimacy. And so this is why you see things. So in Australia at the moment, we've got a bill that's possibly coming before us, a misinformation bill. Um, where the Australian government wants to define certain things and some of this come out of COVID and other sort of things. But, um, you know, how do you do this? Because digital tech is benefiting in some ways. It benefits both the, the overclass and the underclass, but it also can it creates a lot of loud 
uh, uh, what do you call those things that that project your voice? Megaphone. Megaphones. <laughs> Megaphones yeah. um, for that sort of you know underclass um, dynamic. So I think what we're seeing is a slow return of realism. The overclass are are finding it harder to deal with the return of realism mm. than the underclass as well. Okay, so you've explored this new uh, polarization. One of the, I guess, potentially defining features of a new era that we're uh, moving into. So, what does this, what does this new era look like for us as leaders um, or as people of faith, mm. um, people who maybe work in churches? Mm. Our listeners are many and varied. What mm. what can we kind of take away or um, glean from this from today? Yeah, well, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see as I sort of outlined, a shift from idealism to realism. Mm -hmm. But idealism is not going to go away easily. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you're going to almost see increasing also, I mean, you could add another polarization, I'd argue, between the idealists and the realists mm. as well. Um, you're going to see increased frustration, I think, uh, particularly as I think economic issues become returned to the forefront. Mm. Uh, really interesting, I think, that, you know, we have a, a potentially very large uh, auto worker, uh, automotive industry worker strike in the United States, mm. possibly one of the biggest ones, I think, maybe yeah, since I think the it's 80s. The, or something. Well, I think it's the biggest one ever or something. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, you know, and that was sort of stuff which people thought had gone away. And, um, you know, you – you, you have this sense that in many ways the area that we're looking forward to looks a lot like the 1970s mm. where you had, uh, you know, sort of low growth, high interest rates. Uh, you had this sort of sense of nihilism about the culture. And actually it was really interesting. Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day, actually These Times um, with Helen Thompson and Tom Tugendhat, uh, which is actually one of my favourite podcasts. Ah. I really like Helen Thompson's analysis um, uh, I think she's professor of history at Cambridge. Um, and they had on the historian Damien Sandbrook, who many people might know from the other podcast called The Rest is History. Um, and he'd, he's written a number of books. I've almost read all of them on, on Britain in the 1970s. And um, one of his uh, – uh, Sorry, I enjoy that you've read those books. <laughs> no, they're great. They're really good. It's like they're big, thick monsters. Um, I've only got one to go. 60s into, into the 82. Um, and uh, really interesting, I forget which one is, maybe State of Emergency. He begins by telling the story of that sort of decline period in, in Great Britain where, you know, like the power was only on three days a week and there was strikes and garbage piling up on, on the pavements and stuff like this. And he starts by telling the story of Star Wars being produced in in, in London. Mm. And they basically, basically George Lucas produced Star Wars because it was so cheap to make it yeah. in 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 um in England. And like George Lucas's wife is like bored and like, you know, sitting at home and they get burgled and she hates it. And like the actors are like going to the pub and the pubs are shutting early and like, what is this? And and what's really interesting is they asked Damien Sandbrook, they said, they said, are we are we in the 70s again? And he sort of said, look, there's a lot of similarities, but what's different about the 70s was that in the 1970s, there was this explosion in, in Britain, at least, of and around the world of creativity. Mm. You know, this is when punk and, and so much, you know, contemporary music emerges, hip hop, like, like and, and coming from very much from the street up, yes. you know, like you think punk comes from the street in, in Britain and in New York and hip hop in, in the Bronx and, you know, Brooklyn, all these places. Like, 
um, this this huge burst of like there were all these collectives started mm. and, and there's a sense of imagination. People were almost like, we've got nothing to lose. Let's the order's falling down. Let's build something new. And he said, that's not happening now. Yeah. I thought that's really interesting. That there's a lack of creativity, a lack of birth at this moment. I actually found that quite sad. But then I thought, hang on, okay, it's not coming from the culture so much. And so much of culture is just in this recurring retro moment, you know, like yes. endless Marvel movies and endless like, re, you know, resurrections of past musical. There was an interesting article, I think it was in Billboard magazine recently of how the music industry is struggling to break new artists. Like, mm. you know, like like Taylor Swift's making gazillions of dollars and propping up the US economy, but she's racing towards middle age, you know, and it's really hard to break new artists. So there's a sadness that we're stuck in a nihilistic, you know, unvirtuous circle. But then I thought, you know, what are the scriptures about? The scriptures story is that, you know, when there's often sort of breakdown that uh, with God, new creation can begin. Mm. And, you know, I thought, what if actually in this moment that, you know, we're, we're hit, moving into this new time, you know, there's an element where uh, we have an idealism that has a basis. It's not an idealism as much as it is faith because it's yes. based in the resurrected Jesus. Um, we're also that enables us to look at the world through realistic eyes, and the scriptures are completely attuned to economic inequality, mm. and the the scriptures are very much attuned to, you know, the the, the heart and the and the pain of of people who often find themselves at the very bottom of society, and and often through economic, um, you know, exploitation. And you know what? What if what if at this moment you know that the creativity again came from the church? Mm. And what if the culture is not going to deliver it, and we're not going to have a, a rebirth of a new punk or a new art school or a new film movement or a new political vision? You know what if actually this time where after all that we've been through in in all these crises in the last few years, what if actually you know part of this renewal movement that we've been talking about that God is birthing something new? Mm. And so I, I wonder if at this time of nihilism and hopelessness and defeatedness, which I think may grow, you know, like I, I don't see a lot of the governments that we have been left nor right um, able to solve some of the great issues that are arising that were spoken about today. What if actually at this moment that, you know, hope came from the church and the people mm. of God? Um, so I'm excited about that possibility and, um, yeah. Yeah. You have just answered <laughs> the question that I was going to ask, uh, which was, yeah, just looking at moving from idealism to realism. Idealism is so often associated with hope and, mm. you know, a bright future and realism is often so associated with just seeing glass half empty. Yes. Um, but we as as followers of Jesus, of, mm. as people of faith, um, our hope is found in him. Mm. Yeah. It's mm. good. Mm. Well, we will be back soon yep. for another episode. Thank you yep. for joining us today. Um, are we recording subscriber chats after this? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah great. Okay. So if you want to um, grab a copy of subscriber chats, which you don't really do because it's going to be on um, via an email, you can subscribe to our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co and uh, registering there. And if you would like to send donations of shampoo to Daniel, <laughs> please send them to P.O. Box, Dirty Hair, <laughs> Melbourne 3000. Uh, we'll see you next time. Oh,
turn that descender. <laughs> <laughs>